0: The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Steve Brill has been a disruptor all his life. As a young journalist in the 1970s, he took politicians to task and wrote a searing expose of the Teamsters Union. He founded the American Lawyer, which later gave rise to court TV. He's written incisive critiques of the American healthcare and public education systems. His new project is NewsGuard. He's assembled a team of top journalists to evaluate news sites to give people a sense of the value of what they're getting. We talked about all that more when he passed through Chicago the other day. Steve Brill, it's, it's really an honor to have you here. I'm a great admirer of yours and well, thanks. your work, You, uh, your prodigious work, I should say, and I hope to get into a bunch of it. Um, But I want to talk a little bit about your story. You've written a book, this book, Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Uh, And you've said that you started off uh, wanting to write an autopsy for the American dream. But you've kind of lived the American dream. Uh, Your dad ran a uh, a, uh, a marginally successful uh, liquor store, uh, yeah,
2: Emphasized marginally. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and um, uh, tell me a little bit about that about 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 your folks and how you grew well, up.
2: The book is complicated because, in fact, I have lived the American dream, and as I th- thought about it, I realized that I was sort of part of something that was great, but that uh, ended up in many ways um, uh, boomeranging the country. Um, I started out. Um, uh, growing up um, in Far Rockaway, Queens, which it, uh, which as mm-hmm. you well know is as far as you can get from Manhattan. Yes, and still be yes. in the. I used to maras.
1: read about it when I grew up in Manhattan.
2: And, um, it was two subway fares. Yeah, uh, the only place that was, and my father owned uh, the small liquor store in uh, Manhattan, and I used to work there on weekends from the time I was like eight or nine, and um, I was very interested in politics and very much. Inspired. Uh, why, uh, why
1: were you interested in politics? I just
2: was. I mean, I just. I mean, we're of a ba- basically
1: the same generation. Yeah. So Kennedy was also an inspiration. So it was Kennedy for me. And
2: and and one day um, I was going. Um, I was enrolled um, um, in a junior high school um, in Queens, and I was a terrible basketball player. and We were playing basketball, and I went up for a rebound, and came down and landed on my knee and broke my knee. And the New York City public school system at the time had a regulation that you couldn't go to school with a cane or uh, with crutches. You had to stay home, which was fine with me. Yeah. So I was home. It's kind of a perverse incentive, isn't it? totally ridiculous. Uh, So I was home for six or eight weeks, and I was reading books, and um, this is uh, 1964. In fact, I remember it was the night of the New Hampshire primary, which was then in March of 64. And um, that's not a Brookman. And you know, I was really interested in politics, and I had gotten this biography of, of uh, President Kennedy, the late President Kennedy, um, and it obviously had uh, been started, you know, uh, before he uh, was killed. And it said that he'd gone to a prep school. I didn't even know what that was. And it said that he went to this uh, uh, this place called Choate. And I asked my parents. What it was, and they didn't know. And I sort of, you know, I dug around a little bit. You know, uh, you couldn't exactly Google Chote then, but yes. but somehow one thing led to another, and I f- realized that prep school was something you could go to that was like college. You lived on a nice campus. The athletic uh, facilities were all great, and I um, I fancied myself a baseball player and a swimmer, and I decided to apply to prep school because that would get me out of Far Rockaway. Earlier than if I went off to college.
1: Why'd you want to get out of Far Rockaway?
2: I just didn't like it. I just didn't like the schools, and I was, uh, and I was ambitious. I, mean, I don't quite know what drove me then, and the reason I decided I wanted to interview um, at prep schools was the first one. That I picked, uh, uh, what happened was there was something called Lovejoy's College Guide that you may remember. Yeah, sure. Well, it turns out there's a Lovejoy's Guide to prep schools. (laughs) And I picked all the schools that had a star and an asterisk next to them. I have no idea what that meant, but it sort of implied that those were the best ones. So Andover was first on my list. And the advantage of Andover was that I had to fly there. And my parents uh, took me up in an airplane. The advantage of that was that. I'd never been on an airplane. And those of us who now live on airplanes. Let
1: aren't. me just interrupt you. Did they not? Obviously, you, you said that it was a struggle for your dad to yeah. make this business work. Did it not make them a little bit nervous? Very
2: nervous. And, and, and I was determined.
1: Did you have siblings?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, two sisters who were older than I was, who were in, in Far Oakway High School. And I didn't want to go to Farquay High School. So, but I wanted to go on an airplane. <laughs> and we got to take the shuttle to Boston. Went up to Andover, and the uh, the admissions director at Andover had the temerity to look me in the eye and say, "Are you sure you could do the schoolwork here?" And here I was, this you know, straight one hundred, you know, or ninety-eight student at junior high school one ninety-eight in Queens. I mean, how could anybody even ask me that? So I decided I didn't like that.
1: Kind. That would have been even good at junior high school 104, yeah. <laughs> which is where I went. I
2: went to PS 104, called, <laughs> elementary school. So next came Hotchkiss, which looked really great, but they said that uh, the financial aid kids, I knew I'd, that I'd have to partake in uh, the limited aid uh, the, uh, that prep schools were starting to give in those days. The, uh, the financial aid kids had to wait on tables, and the kids who were paying uh, the full freight uh, didn't. So I didn't like that. Then I got to this place called Deerfield, where these, this veteran, legendary, old headmaster who'd been headmaster since, if you can believe it, I think 1901, this is 1964 when I'm applying, um, said that their financial aid policy, which they had just evolved, they had just decided they wanted to, to take uh, you know, people who aren't rich in was that uh, my parents who, who were with me? They should just write him a check at the end of the year for whatever they felt that they could afford. Yeah, that's that seemed like a good financial. Frank aid Boyden, plus. right? Yeah, that's right. the guy's name. Right.
1: Yeah, that's a progressive yeah, vision. Yeah, they've
2: gotten that money many times back from me, but um, so I decided. Well, that's that sounds like the place for me. And the first year, I absolutely hated it, but I could never tell my parents that I hated it because I had insisted on going. And one thing led to another, and I ended up at, at Yale, also on financial aid, and, and then Yale Law School, which I went to uh, really because my stuff was in New Haven, and uh, and my parents <laughs> thought I should have more than a BA. I was uh, working uh, for John Lindsay at the time, yeah. uh, when he was mayor.
1: You, you started working for him when you were a freshman in, in college. Right? Actually,
2: a senior in high school. Uh. Uh, no, I'm um, a senior in college, I'm sorry. I see uh, when I was a senior in college I started uh, working on his campaign when I was a sophomore in college I worked on his mayoral campaign and then they kind of liked me so they made me an assistant to the mayor and I commuted uh, between New Haven and uh, New York and there were two kids who were literally kids who were working for Lindsay at the time uh, Jeff Katzenberg and me yeah. um, and both he did, done pretty well yeah well he's he's done quite well. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, by the time we got to 1972, Lindsay was running uh, for I president. I remember.
1: I want to interrupt you for a second because I was a kid in New York at the time, and I, the fir- f- one of the first candidates I ever worked for when I was 10 years old was John Lindsay, and I was came from a Democratic family. I worked at the Liberal Party headquarters because uh-huh. you could, he was running that. on the Liberal yeah. Party line, so I felt that was okay. Yeah. Um, but he was an intriguing figure. I mean, he was a Kennedy-esque figure, but he was a Republican when there was when there were liberal Republicans.
2: Right. He he earned the original moniker uh, uh, limousine liberal.
1: Yeah, but he but he brought all of I mean the, the, the roster of people who worked for John Lindsay. Oh, well, let me know, tell Ken you, Ken Oletta and Jeff Greenfield and uh, Bob Shrum. and
2: when I was working for Lindsay in the Florida primary. In 1972, which was, I think, the first uh, primary. Uh, uh, there was an Arizona caucus, then a Florida primary in 72. And Lindsay had switched parties, and he was running, he was running to the left of McGovern. And I was the junior speechwriter. I was a senior in college, and I had just abandoned New Haven. And I was basically a gopher and a research person for the other speechwriters, who were Jeff Greenfield. Bob Schramm um, and Sandy Berger, yeah. who uh, became you know absolutely one of you know the best friends I've ever had. He passed away yes uh, last year I think, and that was quite a you know group of talented people to learn from. Sandy Berger, who became the National Security Advisor right. uh, for President Clinton. Clinton.
1: Yeah, um, tell me about Lindsay, though, because he strikes me as kind of a tragic figure. You know, he he was. Uh, sort of a national figure when he got elected mayor of New York, a Republican. He defeated Tammany Hall and Abe Beam. And he was considered, you know, a kind of visionary guy. And he had all of you guys around him. And he switched parties, partly because he was drummed out of the Republican Party, lost his primary mm-hmm. in 1969. But um, he, uh, he he crashed and burned in that Florida primary. And uh, and. The next year, he left office. He ran for the Senate, I think, in 1980, and he yeah, didn't defi- get very far. At all. And, well, and, and he and he kind of drifted off. And uh, I think I'm given a believe that he, you know, the end of his he, life it, wasn't it was all that.
2: No, no, absolutely right. Um, what what happened? Why I did think he- you know I've thought about this a lot. I think he made the basic mistake that politicians can make, especially if the politician is an executive and not a legislator, which is that management and the nuts and bolts really count. And as you know, with all respect, I think that was a mistake that the Obama administration made in rolling out uh, the Affordable Care Act, that it was great policy, great vision, and at least at the beginning, the execution wasn't so hot, and people weren't paying attention to that. Well, with Lindsay, that was writ large, because what people care about in a mayor is Right, you know, the does the garbage get collected? Right. Does, the, you know, does the snow get plowed? If you call 911, which, by the way, Lindsay launched, uh, the first 911 system anywhere in the country, if you call 911, do the police show up? I mean, there, there are basic things that people expect, and there isn't a liberal or conservative way to do that, and they want a mayor to be a real manager and yeah. be responsible. And, and he did not exude that. Yeah, and he wasn't really. He actually got greeted with a
1: welcome the NBA mo- to the NBA moment the the day he took office because the transit yeah. workers right. struck right in New York. So yeah, he he was. Uh, but um, you were uh, as witnessed by the fact that you started there while you were still in college, kind of a precocious figure around there. You tell a yeah. st- story about your first uh, encounter with Ray Kelly, who l- years later would be the police chief in New York, the police commissioner, but was then just. Yeah, this a is actually detective. pretty funny,
2: and I um, mean, pretty embarrassing if you. Uh, <laughs> and you need to have a capacity for self-awareness, which I've gradually gained over the years. <laughs> so here's the Ray Kelly story. After. Um, uh, once I started working for but uh, before or after he had run for president, he had another year as mayor when I was an assistant to the mayor and I was a first year law student. And I was put in charge of liaison with the police department and with issues like uh, gun control and anti-crime programs and stuff like that. And I had gotten this idea from uh, my experience working in my father's liquor store that Small uh, retail establishments, especially liquor stores, because they weren't allowed to take any credit cards at the time, uh, were constantly being held up. And if they had hold-up alarms, uh, it would really help a small businessman who couldn't really afford to have hold-up alarms at those times. So we came up with something called the Merchants Protective Program, which installed hold-up alarms in small retail businesses on Astoria Boulevard, you know, all places you know, um, uh, 23rd Street. In other yeah. words, not, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue, right. but, you know, basic right. middle-class s- retail small places. Small shops, small So it was a five thing. or six, uh, uh, there were five or six neighborhoods. And the police department assigned this young detective to me who, um, who, who I was supposed to work with to get this program going. And I remember kind of, you know, I don't remember much about it except that, uh, 20 years later, you know, 25 years later, um, I'm running uh, the Court TV cable network. And this guy comes on who had been uh, the police commissioner of New York and was now head of uh, the Customs uh, Bureau yes. um, in you know, the federal government. He comes on uh, for an interview I'm um, on Court TV. And as was my habit, um, if someone – uh, you know, was coming on for the first time. I would go up to the studio, and after they came off the set, I would thank them. And I went up to him, you know, and I thanked him. And he said, "You don't remember me, do you?" And I said, "Well, why would I remember you?" He says, "Don't you remember the Merchants Protective Program? Mm-hmm. Don't you remember the detective uh, who was assigned to?" Him? I said, "That's you." He said, "Yeah, you know, and I owe you my entire career." And I said, "Well, why do I, you know, why do you owe me your career?" He said, because you were so nasty and so arrogant, and you thought you knew so much, and you were just so terrible, that I'd come home at night and I'd complain to my wife that this first year Yale law student uh, was bossing me around, and I couldn't take it anymore. And she said, Well, why don't you go to law school? Why don't you try to make something of yourself? And I enrolled in law school because of you, and that's got me where I am today. So, you. So, thank you were you. such
1: a dick to the guy. Yeah, I, I was just that terrible. he decided to make more of his life. And go to, and no, go to and law. And Ray school. will
2: tell you that stuff. I mean, he, he unabashedly You were like still 22 at the time. I was exactly 22, 22 and a half. Yeah. And he was. That a, must have stuck in he his He was crime. a Vietnam veteran, yeah. you know, a Marine, and a New, yeah, New York City he's police a, detective. a serious guy. Correct? And I'm telling him what to do vis a vis crime fighting. Just imagine This that. reputation of
1: yours is uh, goes. It, it extends forward. Well, let's you, not get carried it's, away. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, uh, you. There are a lot of great young journalists who have worked for you at various places, and we'll get to those places mm-hmm. in a minute. Uh, and their basic thing is that you taught them how to be great reporters and that you were, it was they have PTSD because you were tough and you, were, you demanded a lot of them.
2: Well, some had PTSD. I'm some, kind of making it up. So, yeah, I'm you're, cleaning you're it up a little for well, you. No, no, you're actually – in some cases you're overstating it. In some cases you're understating it. Um, it's hard to, you know, look at, uh, you know, Jim Cramer on television and not agree that maybe he still has some PTSD issues. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of the others, you know, d- 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 did pretty well. And I feel really good about, uh, about the fact that in many instances where I've had PTSD, um, you know, a one journalism enterprise that they work for, and then I start a new one. A lot of them are happy to come back, and the ones that don't, it's typically because you know they've advanced so far in their careers that I wasn't able to hire them back. It would be hard to hire you know Jill Abramson, you know, back from yes, the New York yeah, Times. yeah,
1: she yeah she did pretty well as well, uh, having gone from you and ultimately becoming mm-hmm. the editor of the of the New York Times. Uh, why did you go into journalism and not politics? Um, you, as soon, After Lindsay years, you started writing for New York Magazine. You wrote some provocative pieces, one about George Wallace. Mm-hmm. George Wallace is worse than you think. Uh, this was during the 1976 campaign for president. And another about this governor from Georgia named Jimmy Carter who promised mm-hmm. never to lie to the American people, and you held him to it and uh, scrutinized his his representations and wrote a, another provocative piece. Yeah. Um, what what drew you to journalism rather than staying on the, on the policy and politics
2: side of politics? Because, you know, when I was in college and law school, I sort of, uh, you know, teetered on the edge. While I was in college, I'd written uh, two or three pieces that I just mailed in that made it onto the op-ed page of the New York Times. So that made me think I was, you know. And had writer. you always
1: been a good writer? Is that something that always interested you?
2: It always interested me, and I'd been a good writer. You know, I'd gone through the phase that we all went through of thinking that I was, you know, Jimmy Breslin or Pete Hamill. Yes. And, you know, and then I sort of got over it. I remember that phase. my own yes. style. Um, but, yeah, I always liked writing, and I liked the fact that I could, um, you know, control what I was doing and have an impact. And uh, it was... Uh, just sort of the luck of the draw that when Lindsay left office, um, his press secretary at the time uh, was Tom Morgan, Mm -hmm. who was a highly regarded uh, magazine writer and editor. And he went to work for New York Magazine as a senior editor. And he said, uh, you know, hey, kid, you want to try to write some stuff for New York Magazine? And um, I was in law school at the time. And I said, sure. And I wrote one piece, which was a piece that drew on the work I had done um, in New York City for the government, which exposed the black market in handguns. Uh, there were four states in the South that were responsible for 90 plus percent of all the handguns that were seized from criminals in New York City. And I wrote about uh, that black market, and that was considered a pretty big deal then. It's, it's, it's a yeah, pretty big deal Still now. a problem now. Um, and, um, and Clay Felker, the legendary founder yeah. and editor of New York Magazine, loved the piece and really liked. The idea of you know this kid who was uh, commuting from law school though I actually wasn't commuting that much, yeah. um, you know we'd write magazine articles and I just I took off writing a, a, you know feature articles for New York Magazine and kind of never looked back.
1: You weren't commuting that much because I was you spent more time writing than yeah. than uh, than in class. Yeah, but you made your way through. Anyway. There
2: are others who've done that process at Yale Law School. Yeah, you know legendary others, uh, you know including one, uh, you know, president of the United States. Uh-huh. Uh, Bill Clinton, I Bill assume Clinton, you're, you're yeah. referring to. He was a couple of years ahead of me, and he was known for for never being, you know, for rarely being there by his third year.
1: And a, and a uh, another legendary figure was Alice Mayhew, a, a publisher, she, right. and she saw your work, and she encouraged you to write a book. And because you... Uh, hadn't been provocative enough, you tried you, you decided to take on the Teamsters Union.
2: Right. And this is, uh, there's a pattern here. I like to write about stuff that I don't know anything about because it's, it's curiosity that, that really impels me. I I'm teach a journalism seminar at Yale now, and that's yes. what I always say to people, which is you've got to, the best stories are going to be stories where you're really curious and you don't really know the answer. Yeah. Um, when I set out to write about healthcare, for example, I had just written a book about uh, the education reform yes. movement, where the issue was that you know the teachers were basically uh, you know controlling the schools and not giving way to the reforms that uh, that were necessary. So my instinct
1: teachers unions you uh,
2: the unions. teachers union mm-hmm. sorry. So my instinct in thinking about well why is healthcare so expensive, and why are the results uh, so subpar compared to the rest of the world? My instinct was. Well, maybe it's the hospital workers' union, or maybe it's the doctors who are making too much money, and it turns out it was exactly the opposite of that. And that was, you know, a thrill to learn that stuff. But I just parachuted in and didn't know anything.
1: When you say exactly the opposite, won't you explain that? Well, the the
2: people who the, the only people who are not making out in the bonanza that is American healthcare, the unique bonanza that is American healthcare, are the doctors and the nurses. And uh, the orderlies, are or the people actually providing the health care? Yeah, the people, if you sell MRI equipment in New England, you make more money than the average doctor. And by the way, we don't need any MRI. Uh, we don't need any more MRI equipment. We have too much of it, and we use way too much of it uh, you know, much too much of the time. So uh, uh, my point is that I like to take things which you know which I know are big fat topics and that I'm really curious about, and that I think I can figure out if I just spend enough time on it. And you, uh, and you write at
1: length. I mean, you wrote you, you, the stuff was good enough that people were willing to run in full uh, extraordinarily long and, and, and depthful uh, pieces, some of which you turned into books. I mean, that piece you wrote, and we're now years later. I'm losing my my uh, timeline here, but uh, on healthcare started as a the bitter pill. Right. Started as a piece in Time
2: magazine that you right. turned it was twenty six thousand words. That uh, basically it was the first time Time, you know, in in essence, turned over their issue yeah. for one thing. And usually, I was able to write long because I own the publication. Yeah, and that helps. The American lawyer helps. Yes, yes. Or, or Brill's content, so that's easy. Yes, you know, people let me have my way sometimes for not very good results. But, uh. <laughs> the uh, well, let's <laughs> let, let, let's just briefly talk about the
1: the Teamsters book, mm-hmm. and then I want to move into sure. these other. Um, I, I remember uh, when uh, I was a young reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I think it was my second day. This kind of merges two points about you and about journalism. But uh, they said. Um, that uh, Frank Fitzsimmons had just v- voted himself and all the leaders of the right, Teamsters all, all that money. Yeah. He was the president who succeeded Jimmy Hoffa. Maybe conspired in his disappearance, mm-hmm. as you wrote about. Mm-hmm. But uh, the uh, my uh, the uh, guy on the desk that day, a guy named Don Grella, old crusty guy, said, "Hey, why, hey kid, uh, why don't you go out? This is my summer internship. Why don't you go out <laughs> and find some Teamsters and ask them how they feel about this?" So I was terrified to you know to go out to the loading dock and ask these guys how they felt about. But I was more scared of going back and telling him that that I didn't get the story. And I must say, there were a bunch of them who looked at me like I was insane, uh, thought I was trying to get them killed. But um, but you
2: got to do that. I mean, you got to go. You know, one of the things I find um, that I actually have to tell these these students I have at Yale who are all people who want to do journalism they're like the editors of the Yale Daily News and all that stuff is you you got to get up and go to places and you got to talk to people i mean the abiding memory i have when i wrote that book about the teamsters was in the middle of august i went on new jersey transit from manhattan and i had this bulky ski jacket on so i must have looked like uh, you know, I was a terrorist, although this is, You know, these are you know pre-terrorism days, yeah. days. So I'm wearing this bulky winter jacket. Why? Because I'm spending the day in a frozen food warehouse. I'm um, in Jersey City, uh, talking to Teamsters. In this case, uh, Teamsters who'd been screwed out of their benefits and their pensions by their union, which was run uh, by Tony Provenzano, yeah. a uh, notorious Tony mobster. Pro, yes, yeah.
1: who uh, who figures in the whole. Oh yeah,
2: disappearance of Hoffa. So I knew nothing about the Teamsters when what Alice suggested was she said uh, pick a big institution <laughs> that's really powerful and you know figure. Did she out say and try not to get killed in doing it? Did she mention <laughs> yeah. that? So she says and try you know try to figure out how to tell a story. And I remember she sent me what's the book, A Ship of Fools, where a ship goes down, there are 12 people on the ship, and it's a narrative. She, yeah. she sent me that. She said, here, use this as an example. I said, what are you talking about? This is a novel about you know, shipwreck. She said, well, just think of it as an institution. So I'm talking to my friends, and one day I was on the phone uh, with Sandy Berger, whom I just mentioned. He was a young lawyer in Washington at the time. Um, and I said, what's an institution that everybody's interested in and nobody knows about, and it's really good stuff? He said, well, what about the Teamsters Union? And it was just after Hoffa had, had uh, been disappeared. Uh, he uh, was disappeared in 1975, and this was 1976. I said, That's it. I'll do the Teamsters Union. And Alice Mayhew never batted an eyelash. She didn't say, Well, what do you know about the Teamsters? Turns out I'd taken some labor law at law school, though I should say. That I doesn't had, prepare you for that. I did say I had enrolled in labor law classes at law school. <laughs> yeah. That's the way to put it. But I just had a ball doing the book. Yeah yeah
1: so the American lawyer you mentioned that you you reached a point and it was pretty quick you were twenty nine years old when you started the american lawyer twenty eight all right well there you go <laughs> uh fact checking no. is uh, no it's a, no
2: your your producers did not go wrong. The first issue was launched all right good 29. all right
1: everybody's off the hook here <laughs> yeah.
2: um but um the
1: uh the American lawyer was uh Unusual, uh, because you 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 decided to look at the the law the business of law, in many ways. Right.
2: So here's again, here's a big powerful institution that nobody knows about. In this case, the institution are law firms. So I here's how I got the idea. Um, I was going to law school, so I figured you know I gotta think about something to write about lawyers and you know, make some use of this somehow. And I'm standing outside the. Uh, the career services office of the Yale Law School. And I was standing outside there, not because I wanted to partake of career services, but because that's where the soda machine was. And I put my money and I get the soda machine and I'm looking at the bulletin board. And the bulletin board has letters, you know, from 30 different law firms uh, trying to recruit Yale law students. And in each case, you know, whether it's from Siddeley and Austin or Cravath or you name it, in each case, the letter says, we seek unusually talented students with unusual standards of ethics uh, to represent an unusually diverse group of unusually important clients. And they had this, the, the, the same grade of stationery. It was like parchment. And they all said the same thing. And I'm thinking to myself, they got to be different. I mean, these are big businesses. There has to be a difference. Nobody knows about them. And I had written one article for New York Magazine about uh, these two law firms, that I had predicted were going to be hugely successful, which it turns out they ended up they were. And I was sort of into the idea, and I said, well, what about a magazine that's about the business of law? Not about law, because I didn't know anything about law, um, yeah. but the business of law. And originally, everybody said that it was gossipy. If you wrote about, you know, how is it that Lloyd Cutler's law firm, you a know, very prominent uh, lawyer in Washington, how is it that his law firm lost the Delta Airlines account to this other law firm, that was a gossip story. If you wrote about um, how they lost the banking business, that was a perfectly good story to be in the Wall Street Journal. Right? right. So nobody was doing this, and I and I was really curious about it. And I was also curious about, you know, uh, some of them must offer better opportunities to to women, uh, to non whites. Uh, some of them must have better litigation departments than others, and some of them you know Pro must have practicing. a lot of um, internal fighting. Yes. And the preview issue that we did, which was the one we did in 1978, where we handed it out to shocked people at an American (laughs) Bar Association convention, uh, uh, was written uh, by Jim Warren, who was then at uh, the Sun-Times.
1: And in full disclosure, Jim Warren's sitting at the end of the table here, one of the great Chicago journalists. Right.
2: Um, uh, um, And Brian Kelly, who was his partner in crime, and it was about a fight at what is still uh, the Kirkland and Ellis Law Firm, uh, uh, where one of its uh, senior partners, Don Rubin, yeah, had decided to leave and the fight, in And Chicago. that was the cover of the preview issue of The American Lawyer. And who wrote about that stuff? That stuff was never written about.
1: You know, what's interesting is in your book, uh, Tailspin, your, your, your most uh, recent book, you, you talk about this uh, decline of the American dream and uh, one of the premises of the book is that coterminous with that and part, partly responsible for it is the rise of super lawyers and these mega law firms uh, and financial engineers who have become incredibly successful in the modern, uh, in the modern economy and in modern business, but uh, have uh, made uh, success a more closely held asset uh, Unattainable uh, for uh, large right. numbers I, of people. How did that happen?
2: Well, we all know what the problem. Uh, we all see the ramifications of the problem, which is, you know, galloping, uh, you know, inequality and inequality of opportunity. Still, and the way it happened with all these smart people like me is, let's take the pre meritocracy days. Okay, like the uh, the pre uh, you know the early '60s um, when Yale wasn't you know looking to give scholarships to to people like me um, and others who who were really smart but didn't have the money. In those days, uh, if you were a partner at a Wall Street law firm, you were a partner at a Wall Street law firm probably because uh, your parents knew someone, or your or you were on uh, the uh, lacrosse team with someone who was at that firm, or you know. You had a connection. Once law firms started, i mean, in law firms, and you can say this about investment banks and, and uh, consultancies, once law firms started to focus on merit, which is a good thing, right? Opportunity for everybody. That's obviously a good idea. Once they started to focus on merit, they realized that they had to get the most talented people and they had to incent the most talented people. So they dramatically raised the starting salaries and people who had you know, let's say gotten loans to go to these places, were highly tempted. And I'm a long story short is that, you know, the white shoe law firms of the world were suddenly much smarter than they ever were because they were getting the smartest people, not the people who had, who, who had the connections. If you suddenly decide, well, let's expand the talent pool by 100% by thinking about women instead of just men, you're going to get more talent. I mean, uh, you may be doing it uh, uh, because you're a nice person, but uh, the result of your doing it is you're going to have you know, smarter, better lawyers. So when it comes to uh, defending um, a mining company against a, um, a charge of black lung disease or defending um, an antitrust case uh, that uh, the government brings, you're going to have smarter people who can do that. When it comes to uh, slowing down OSHA regulations – or challenging them in court, you're going to have batteries of the best and brightest who are going to do that. And when it comes to thinking up ways to enhance uh, the value of stock, often at the expense of um, employees of companies, you're going to have bankers and lawyers who uh, you know who who invent things like, stib- like uh, you know, stock buybacks and corporate takeovers, and uh, They're going to invent these things and they're going to build moats that protect them and their clients because they're just so damn smart. They also have – you add
1: to that the weaponization of money in politics. And all of these interests know now how to deploy uh, their lobbyists, their campaign contributions to assist in these.
2: uh, That's another important element of the book is I um, I trace the weaponization of of, uh, the First Amendment. Um, which starts ironically with a lawsuit brought by uh, Ralph Nader's group um, in 1976 to um, allow uh, discount drug stores um, uh, that wanted to advertise that they were offering discounts in, um, in uh, the state of Virginia on expensive prescription drugs. And the incumbent drug stores had lobbied to get a law passed in Virginia that said you can't advertise the price of prescription drugs. So Nader's people said that's anti-competitive, and they established the notion, the constitutional notion that the rights of listeners are just as important to the First Amendment, if not more important than the rights of speakers. And if you're thinking about the rights of listeners, in this case, as Nader's lawyers put it, old people and poor people who needed those discounts on drugs, um, if you think about the rights of listeners, then why worry about who's doing the speaking? You should treat corporations like people because mm-hmm. listening is is the key. That sounds great, until it becomes basically uh, uh, the Citizens United case.
1: open season for corporate money yeah. in politics.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: you know, in reading uh, in in reading your book, um, it is. Um, I, I think about Donald Trump, who's someone you know. Pretty well. He's been around New York. He's been around New York. You were around New York. Uh, You you observed uh, his mentor Roy Cohn, who you yeah uh, him I knew quite well. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. Um, and but you know I've been thinking a lot about this lately. You know, there's this quote that's out there that that uh, ascribed to his father Fred, who said there are killers and there are losers in the world. There are two kinds of people: there are killers and losers. Uh, And you've got a be the the killer and the subtext of that is that the only thing that really matters is winning and that however you do that is okay that there are no rules there are no norms there are institutions don't need to be regarded uh or nurtured uh, that you take what you can take however you can take it i mean is that a fair well yeah i mean
2: you know you don't even need it you wrote a piece by the way about
1: trump university you did the really big expose yeah, that, uh, on Trump University. Uh, Trump University is a, to metaphor,
2: his- it was a total metaphor for Trump, uh, the president, which is he basically swindled the same people who became his base. In fact, there were two people in the class action suit for Trump University who, were, who told me— They're still going to vote for they're Trump. They're members of the Tea Party, and they're still going to vote for Trump because while he cheated them, it was really smart what he did, and he'll do the same thing for the country. So— but- you, know, you don't need a shrink to analyze Trump from afar to come to that conclusion. You don't even need, you know, Gail Sheehy to do it because Trump just recently said it when he was explaining how he attacked uh, Dr. Ford. His explanation yeah, so was, we, well, Kavanaugh won. Right. He won. Exactly. What, that is, is exactly. what else is
1: there to explain? That is exactly right. But he, but I guess my question is this. You look at the way um, our economy has evolved and there is kind of a Gordon Gecko quality to it that Trump personifies. Trump didn't invent this. He he's he's surfing what has been a slow and steady, inexorable move in in that sort of winner take all uh, kind of economy.
2: Um, well, I think as President Obama said uh, uh, recently, Trump is a manifestation of yes. of this, not not the cause of it. And at the end of the book, I actually say pretty much the same thing, Yes, that that if you tell all these people who are not part of the meritocracy, um, if you signal to them whether it's with trade policies that don't work or job training programs that don't work or a financial system and a Wall Street system that is stacked against them, a criminal justice system that says that if you're the CEO – of a corporation that does tremendous damage, maybe the corporation pleads guilty, but God knows you don't. If you send them all those signals, and basically um, also send them the signal that that money is what counts in politics, they're going to be pissed off. And what I say at the end of the book is that uh, that uh, you know forty-seven percent of them uh, decided, you know, you know, you know, let's just take a flyer on this. Yeah, let's just try it. I don't think that's likely to
1: happen again. Uh, although he maintains that he maintains a, a a pretty committed core, when he said, "My base, if I stood on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, they would still support me." That's There's true. some evidence to support that's that.
2: true. But I think uh, if if Trump University had, had a second semester and you asked people to enroll, I think enrollment would have gone down.
1: Mm-hmm. We 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 shall see. we we're, we're recording this uh, discussion before the midterm elections, which will be an early. Uh, an early signal as to uh, as to where we are. I, I I could literally spend hours talking about the various investigative pieces that you've written over the year. That was one of them. You you uh, did a uh, uh, a piece on uh, a on Johnson and Johnson uh, and exposed some of the uh, predatory uh, practices of the pharmaceutical industry. We talked about your healthcare. Book you wrote a book about uh, uh, education. I mean, you're a prolific, uh, you're a prolific uh, author and a prolific journalist. Um, you're also you're you're a serial entrepreneur here, and some That's of those right. some of those businesses have done well. Some of them uh, have failed. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn from the successes, and what did you learn? From, I think maybe more importantly from the failures.
2: Well, actually, you know, it, it, it's a little bit of a cliche that you learn more from failure than success. Uh, uh, certainly, you would prefer the latter learning process, but um, you do learn from both. And I mean, I think back to you know the first thing you learn if you're if you're doing any kind of a business that is a journalism business, as I have a bit, you know, made a habit of, and it's a content business. What you The first thing you understand is um, you better keep getting better at it and you can never be satisfied. I remember when we printed the first issue of The American Lawyer, I thought it was the best thing since the invention of the printing press. I, 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 it, it was so great, so terrific. By the time we got to the second issue, I was going around the office hiding copies of the first issue because I thought it was so terrible. And that's a good thing. You just wanna keep improving and you need to get, So though it the, may be
1: why these kids who work for you found it <laughs> a little difficult from time to
2: time. Well, yeah, but they <laughs> they survive. Um and the you know, the thing you have to keep reminding yourself of is you know, if you don't get better, you know, someone else is gonna get better than you. And uh that doesn't you know, you just you just always have to you always have to think about that. Um The business now uh, that I'm running today, the other lesson is you've got to get, especially when you're starting something new, you absolutely positively have to get everybody involved uh, sitting around the table as much as every day uh, contributing to the thing that you're creating because uh, you're making it up as you go along and you need everybody's input.
1: You know what's interesting to me about you, uh, what what you said earlier about you, you, uh, you took on things that you didn't know anything about. Uh, and yet you you forged forward in... Uh, I mean, I had the sense that there was this self-assuredness that you had in your relationships with people from the time you were 22 years old that suggested that you you knew a lot.
2: Well, you know, the interesting thing about that, and it's odd that you say it that way, because the one thing I always think is for all the all the things I've started, including uh, the NewsGuard business that I've Yes, started, we're going to talk about that in a second. Um, ...everything I've ever started... If I knew how hard it was going to be when I started it, and I arguably should have known, I would retroactively been terrified. Uh, when I started Court TV, there were like eight states that even allowed cameras in the courts, and I convinced uh, Steve Ross, who was running Warner Communications, you know, don't worry, I'll convince a lot of the others. I mean, just think about how stupid that is. But we, we ended up doing it. Um, yeah. So, uh there's a kind of optimism that often you know is born out of ignorance of just how well and an you know, audacity, yeah. and audacity yeah
1: but that's true of uh, all the yeah, I mean you've been assessment. involved in
2: a lot of endeavors where if you if you look back at it logically you say well you, you, yeah you had no business trying to do that
1: without question my wife reminds me of that all the time <laughs> um, so I uh, I, I want to put a pin in this, and I want to talk about NewsGuard. I want to talk about what you call the business of journalism. Mm-hmm. But uh, just to finish up the discussion sure. on on tailspin, you have some remedies that you think will— I mean, the book ends on an optimistic note, and uh, there are a lot of people who aren't feeling particularly optimistic. now. But what you don't hear in conversations today are— what are solutions that would help? You you have some solutions relative to uh, getting away from the short termism that uh, you know uh, quarterly reports, the tyranny of the quarterly report has has uh, enforced on business um, and politics too. And politics, yes, and politics. Uh, but tell just just very very briefly. What are the two or three things that you think are most important to get done? I know campaign finance. Well, the reform first is money. Yeah. The first is money in politics, yeah.
2: and, and and there are people who make the argument convincingly uh, that if you know, you know, if you don't do that, uh, that, that nothing else is going to happen because everything flows from that. Um, healthcare, real care reform, flows from you know the dominance of money in politics. And what would that be?
1: It, would it be a single payer system? Well,
2: my notion of real care reform is you know i think you know advocating a single payer system today is just it, it's either uh, you know demagoguery or it's just stupid because the healthcare system not a very good choice there. the healthcare system is responsible for 20% of the of uh, the economy in countries that have good healthcare systems it's responsible for anywhere from 8 to 12% of the economy So if you huffed and you puffed and you blew the house down and you reformed healthcare in the United States and let's say got it down to 13 percent of the economy, overnight you would be destroying 7 percent of the economy and 7 percent of the jobs. You would be destroying jobs at what is typically the largest single business and employer in every community in the country, the local hospital. Um, It is just it is politically untenable and economically it's just a really bad idea. My notion is you need to get there slowly. You sort of need to uh, reverse what happened to us beginning uh, with World War II. Uh, when employees Tying health care to employment. What, 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 what we need to do is every year um, lower the availability age of Medicare by two years. And people could buy into it. It would be means tested. Um, and they'd pay more than... Uh, they're going to pay when they're 65, but they could buy into it. Um, the government and Medicare pay much lower prices across the board, but mm-hmm. you can't just dictate that across 100% of the economy because, again, you sink Too the economy. Thing. So over 20 years, you'd go from age uh, 65 uh, to 25, and you would ease in a um, uh, the kind of single-payer system that works. And by the way, Medicare is... The, is probably the most efficient uh, government program that there is. Yeah. And, you know, it brings up an irony that I always uh, you know, talk to my kids in uh, the journalism class. Sometimes the hardest stories to get are the positive stories. When I was doing uh, uh, that healthcare piece for Time magazine, there was um, a sidebar on how well Medicare is run. I had to kill to get that sidebar because a certain uh, – uh, communications regime in a certain White House, this is 2013, would not I was allow me, by then. Uh, would not allow me to interview anybody, anybody at Medicare. They literally took the position uh, Medicare officials do not give interviews. I said, you spend more money than any agency in the government. How, how have you been able to get away with that? Fair, for so question. Long? Yeah, um, fair question. So I finally busted the doors down and got in and so this remarkably efficient place. So that's my solution is but it's a twenty year solution, which brings us back to the beginning of the discussion, which is politicians. You know, what politician thinks long term? Right. What politician is gonna announce a twenty year program in you know, his last year or his fifth to last year? Well that's that was
1: look that was the danger in taking on the affordable care yeah, act because exactly it was a yeah. long
2: term problem and and
1: he knew it when he, he yeah, did no, it. I did I
2: have great admiration for uh, for him uh, for taking that on
1: but it was very hard to get a, the, our political system to think in those terms because ultimately people are looking to the next election not to the next generation not to these long right. long term le- in fact the next term solutions I, I know that there are other uh, solutions that you uh, talk about, uh, and I'm I'm sorry to leave them on the table, but I there's another thing that you've tackled now that is so fundamental that uh, uh, that I think we we need to spend the remaining time on it, which is um, a What do we do about the business of journalism? You know, when I started at newspapers, it was at the end of the golden era in Chicago there was a hard wall between the business side and the reporting side nobody no business person ever set foot in the newsroom editors were defiant and you had a sense that you could do you could do any reporting wherever it led, And they had the resources to support you in doing it. The local news model has basically collapsed. You tried to do something about it a few years ago by mm-hmm. starting a, 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 a company. Which worked, yeah. A company that would help monetize. It worked to some degree. The question but, is,
2: was it too late for a lot of places? Yeah. It wasn't too late for the New York Times.
1: Right. Yeah. And these big national publications are doing well with it. We, we sit here in Chicago. I've got the two Chicago papers in front of me, and I fear for them every day. Uh, because it is so difficult for local uh, newspapers, so that's one issue. Mm-hmm. Um, another is um, that uh, because news is a business and not just a trust, but a business. And you know, you, you mentioned that Time didn't want to run the positive news. Walter Cronkite once mm-hmm. said, we, we, "We don't report the cats that ran away that didn't run away <laughs> that day," but um, but they did that because they have. Those concerns. And now you have cable stations fighting each other, networks fighting each other for diminishing shares of the pie, social media carving in. uh, And uh, so you see financial decisions really, really uh, gripping news decisions in many cases. Um, Seems like an unhealthy. I mean, I may just be Pollyannish because no, you're
2: not, and and you're right. Although I think that I've always thought, and have have done pretty well thinking this way, that um, the best business model for journalism is good journalism, um, and it's even more so online, where everything is uh, you know completely fungible, except the stuff that stands out, and what. uh, What publishers worldwide have figured out is that simply getting the most page views, the most clicks, is uh, a road to disaster. If that's what you focus on, as opposed to getting the most engagement, which is engage readers who will come back and who think you're distinctive because they will buy an online subscription Mm -hmm. to what you're selling. Um, There isn't a single news gathering agency in the history of the United States, the history of the United States it's ever made a profit just from advertising. The closest thing with the network news operations in uh, the 60s and 70s that had a near monopoly, 91% of all the eyeballs, and the news divisions were still seen as a public service because they lost money. So you have to get some money from your readers, which you and I should think is a good thing mm-hmm. because that makes us the product instead of the stuff that runs around the edge. You know, my
1: mother was a reporter at PM in New York when she was a young journalist, and uh, they were a short lived experiment. They wanted to run only a Marshall Field owned it only on subscriptions because they didn't want to be influenced by their advertisers. So this has been a long running.
2: Yeah, you can have a balance, but yeah. um, you know, I think that. Um, it it's not so much having a wall between advertising and 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 news gathering it's the integrity the ultimate integrity of the person in charge
1: the the thing that's happening now is just to get sub- subscribers there is this frenzy and it may be more on television than in print but uh, And Trump understands this better than anyone, and he feeds the beast constantly. It's one of the ways in which he's become such a dominant personality. Let's talk about NewsGuard, because sure. uh, you're trying to attack a problem that is a manifestation of the modern media environment, which is we have all of these websites out there purporting to be news organizations, sometimes propagating outward, uh, outright falsehoods. And your idea was to create a an entity with solid journalists evaluating these websites and uh and uh providing advice to distributors uh of these websites uh, as to which were uh which are legitimate and which are not
2: basically what we're doing is we're hiring journalists, um, some with a couple years experience some as you know with a lot of experience at yes. senior levels to read, rate, and review, to read, review, and rate with a red or a green icon and then a four or 500 word nutrition label. Every one of the thousands of websites responsible starting in the U.S. for all the news and information um, read online in the United States. And we're just about done. We're, we're, at, we're at about nine, uh, 92%. And there is a browser plugin version available if people go to NewsGuardTechnologies.com, but the key to our business model is that the platforms, the social media platforms, and the search engines will license our data and license our ratings uh, so that if you have a Twitter news feed and, uh, and website A appears that is an unreliable uh, news website, you'll see a red icon, you mouse over it, you'll start to read the nutrition label, if something else appears that is reliable and transparent and trustworthy, you'll see a green icon. It is based on the ridiculous premise, ridiculous in much of Silicon Valley, that every once in a while human intelligence is better than the artificial kind. And we have people reading them. And the way we achieve scale is we rate the websites themselves, not individual articles. And when we rate the websites, it's based on nine very specific uh standards and criteria that every journalist on the planet would agree are the basic standards of their process and their reliability and if you get all nine you get a hundred percent but even if you get you know six out of nine you still might get a green but guess what on the other three where we give you a red x we do something highly unusual which is we call you for comment and algorithms don't call people for comment algorithms are not transparent. They don't admit mistakes. You have no idea how they're doing what they're doing. With NewsGuard, anyone who sees it gets a complete window onto our process, even the biographies of the people who wrote the ratings and edited the ratings. And uh, uh, we're partnering with libraries all across the country who are installing it on their devices, and it's really starting to take hold.
1: And how much cooperation are you
2: getting from...
1: uh from Silicon Valley, itself. Well,
2: we've already announced a partnership uh, with Microsoft. And once we actually produced the browser plug-in version and we existed, as opposed to you know being an idea that we talked about, um, our discussions with them, and this was only uh, you know five or six weeks ago, have intensified uh, dramatically. Uh, so we will be announcing some other partnerships soon. And I just got back uh, from Europe, where the European uh, Union, is uh, much more into this than uh, than uh, uh, the American government you know sometimes in ways you know that you and I might you know may, uh, might be hesitant about but there is real uh, interest among the platforms um in Europe and uh, we have stepped up our plans to expand there
1: i mean this is a fundamental challenge to democracy is it
2: not um totally i if, mean if, 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 if you, you can't it, trust what you're reading and you know the analogy is what you have today. Is uh, if you walked into uh, the Chicago Public Library, uh, the main branch, what if uh, what it used to be is you know a library has you know books on a shelf, the shelves are categorized, the books have titles, the publisher's name is there, the author's name is there, you know what you're getting, and there's a librarian who can guide you to what you're getting. What if when you walked into uh, the Chicago Library there were two trillion pages just flying around the air. And you grabbed one and you looked at it and said, gee, I wonder what this is about. I wonder who wrote it. I wonder how reliable it is. What's this supposed to, you know, who is this? Um, that's what the internet is. Yeah. Uh, you can't tell what you're getting, who is feeding it to you. And the average high school kid or college kid, uh, uh, there was just a big article about this, I think uh, yesterday, um, feels that they trust all media less because they don't know what to trust. So to come back to the first part of our conversation, the economic implications of that are terrible. One of the things we hope to do with our green ratings is give advertisers the comfort that they that there's a list of reliable places where their ads can appear, without them uh, supporting propaganda or fake news or being embarrassed. And So uh, the people who wake up in the morning, all of our friends who do uh, legitimate journalism, whether they're conservative or liberal, whether they work for the National Review or work for the Chicago Tribune or work for Vox, um, they're given greens because uh, they're serious people trying to do a serious thing. And the people who have an ax to grind, who are just making stuff up, who are plagiarizing stuff and just you know throwing a lot of stuff against the wall so they get clicks? They're not going to be given greens. So we so hope the obvious, it helps. The
1: obvious question, I mean, the need is clear. The obvious question is: uh, while uh, there are deficiencies to algorithms and we've seen them, they profoundly. Um, there's also an element of subjectivity uh, to human beings, and so the question I'm sure you get is why? Why, Steve Brill, should we? Uh, repose in you, the uh, the authority, the the the, uh, the ultimate um, uh, arbiters' role. Well, here. it's
2: not Steve Brill; it's Steve Brill and dozens of colleagues, including a partner, uh, Gordon Krovitz, yeah. who is a longtime um, editor, University on, of Chicago, on the editorial page of the yeah. Journal, University of Chicago guy. Yes. Um, but more important than who we are, and by the way, we just will will just make you gag on all of our transparency the the bios (laughs) of everybody who works there whether they ever worked in a political campaign um everything about them is there so when you read a label and say all right who wrote this and who edited this but you try and pair people of different points of view or we check our points of view at the door i mean and but and there we focus on the nine criteria there is not a liberal or conservative way to have a corrections policy mm-hmm. there is not a liberal or conservative way to reveal who is financing this website there there are certain ba- there is not a liberal or conservative way not to repeatedly uh, be publishing stuff that is total bs you know the pizzagate scandal yes. for example so we we unflinchingly focus on that and we have received scant criticism, a little bit from the left, because we zing the daily cause, and actually less from the right, if you must know. But we're not focused on that. We we are focused on the nine criteria. And the other thing that uh, that's different, you know, we might uh, be imperfect and algorithms might be imperfect, but you're going to see our mistakes. And when you complain about our mistakes, you're going to see the complaints on our website, and when we correct our mistakes, we're going to say, you know what, we screwed up on that, you're right, we're wrong. None of that, we it's the total opposite of an algorithm. Total transparency, total accountability. And the other thing is, we want people to game our system. You know, the tech platforms say, well, if we told you how the algorithm worked, you'd game our system. Well, we want everybody to game our system. We want someone to say, gee, if I had a corrections policy, I could get more points from NewsGuard. Mm-hmm. Hallelujah, that's why we started the company. And people can learn more about it at at
1: www.newsguardtech.com. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Well, speaking of red and green lights, I've got a red one here. I know. But I'm uh, really, really pleased to to be with you. Congratulations on this. It's a worthy worthy pursuit. And uh, congratulations on the enormous impact that you've made uh, over a long period of time. In uh, journalism and like, in public policy. Let's not
2: emphasize too long, but yeah. Very long. Well, I, only I can do that because <laughs> we're peers. But, that's exactly uh, right. But yeah, thank you for having to be me. be with you, Steve. This is a great Steve discussion. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, Visit politics.uchicago.edu.